You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Chris Lambert. Chris is the Interim CEO at Payload Technologies. Payload helps energy exploration and production companies automate their logistics, allowing them to gain greater visibility into their business cycles. Today, Chris and I are discussing the impact Payload Technologies is having on the oil and gas industry and his observations on technology innovation in Canada. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure's mine. So, Chris, let's start with uh, a look at the company that you lead. First of all, payload.com. That's something of a coup. How did you manage to get that domain name? Were you there for that? Well, um, full disclosure, Tim, uh, I was not there for that. But uh, you're right. Uh, what, a, what an excellent .com to get. Uh, and uh, it's under 40 characters, which seems uh, otherwise impossible these days. Yeah. So, uh, no, I can't claim uh, that was a, a success on my part. But uh, kudos to my, uh, to my uh, forerunners, right? And when was Payload founded and, and uh, how has it evolved since you joined the company? Well, you know, Payload's uh, just over five years old now as a company. Uh, we've really uh, been in this startup uh, scale-up phase. And so um, what I'd say has happened is over the last uh, couple of years that, uh, since I've been at Payload, uh, we started to transition from that startup type company uh, much more into the scale-up company. So today, you know, we're, we're over 20 people now. Um, we have a, a very dedicated staff uh, in terms of the software development side and operation support. Um, you know, all of our disciplines are very, uh, you know, very well, um, uh, very knowledgeable and very capable. And so, um, you know, we all know what we're doing. We've been doing it for a while. We have people in the building who, have been in the field we're in, in, in what I'll call industrial logistics, uh, especially in the oil and gas uh, segment for uh, most of their working lives. Uh, so we have a, a very good mix of people. Uh, the company is really starting to scale up and uh, we've really coalesced our products now into a more holistic platform. So I, I led in with the idea that you serve the oil and gas industry. Where are you located? So we're located in Calgary, Alberta, uh, and uh, we're downtown Rogers Building. And uh, you know, to be honest, though, uh, the last year I haven't been there. So <laughs> yeah, it doesn't uh, matter where been, you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure anybody watching this can uh, can sympathize. It's uh, it's all been remote, um, and it's about time, actually, Tim. I think uh, Calgary, uh, especially a lot of our uh, you know, white collar jobs and, and, and industry needed a good kick in the pants to uh, realize that, uh, you know, having a park in your seat, you know, your butt in a seat for eight hours a day or more is not necessary nor conducive to being productive uh, and adding value to an organization. I think if there's any silver lining in the last year and uh, a bit, it's been, uh, it's been that realization. So that's interesting. What are the other ways that COVID have uh, impacted Alberta and the oil and gas industry? Uh, well, I think, you know, that there's, there are many, we could spend a long time having that discussion. <laughs> uh, I'll keep it close to home though, and just kind of restate. I think that the most impactful way uh, that COVID's impacted Albertans 
uh, has largely been in how we conduct business um, and how we, um, you know, maybe a realization of, of what we do in our, in our time, whether it's work time or, or personal time. And it's, it's been kind of a forced realization that uh, there are alternatives to the status quo. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, if I were to be a bit deeper on the subject, I might consider this as something that's almost analogous to us as a larger industry. Uh, we need to really consider uh, where Alberta is strong in the future, where we're going, uh, especially in the energy industry. Uh, you know, Payload's a, a champion uh, of the ONG space and we, we will always be there to support and help those uh, around us. Uh, but I also think that uh, there's been a realization that we need to have more diversification uh, and um, a challenge in how we do that. And payloads uh, responded on both fronts. You know, we, we provide services to really drive down and optimize cost and reduce, uh, you know, the, the errors and emissions and manual work necessary for our customers. But we also uh, are looking uh, to the left and right and seeing a broader picture on how we progress in the future. And I think that that is probably analogous to what most folks in Alberta are experiencing. So, so when you talk about diversification, are you talking about for payload or for the oil and gas industry participants? For example, like geothermal is a lot of the same stuff, right? It's drilling, it's yeah. piping. Well, listen, I mean, a lot of the oil and gas companies uh, in Alberta are going to be champions for some of the new technologies and, 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 Maybe not new geothermal is not necessarily what I would call new right. or solar power. Or, you know, mm. it, these are all well-known, established technologies, but the viability of them uh, is not necessarily well-established. Yeah. And I think that that's where we're going to need leadership is on how to transition from something that works on a micro level for your family, per perhaps, or as a hobby, or as something that on a small scale is is viable into scaling that up and, in, and morphing it into something that works on an industry scale. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of work that's already been done. There's a lot of uh, uh, you know proof to show that we can head down these directions, but the leaders are gonna be the experts in the energy industry. And I think that uh, a lot of those, those experts reside here in Alberta. Yeah, for sure. And, and don't reside necessarily in Ontario, which is where I am. But you know what? I, I heat my home. I drive my car. I, I definitely need what you guys are doing. And uh, we're all sort of part of that system and, and, and looking forward to a future where we can also have renewables and that kind of thing. So it's great that you're looking at diversification. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, for my part, Tim, uh, I'm all for that, uh, you know, as, as so I, I think we all are. And, and so should we be. Uh, the question really is in what way, what's the, what's the vehicle by which we achieve this, you know? Yeah. And uh, for me, I've, I've always been a very strong uh, proponent of finding innovative and competitive ways to uh, engage people in industry in finding uh, a path to these solutions, which benefit everyone. Uh, and uh, time has proven me right. Uh, every time you look at uh, technologies, uh, processes, industries, 
we've made improvements over time and we have, we absolutely have, and we yeah. continue to do so. And we do so, um, I think in an exponentially faster and faster way. And a lot of what drives that uh, is that uh, capitalism, that, that, that drive to find and innovate and to find a way to do it better and, and compete. Keeps things fresh, keeps us all on our toes. Uh, so for me, it's not about a good guy, bad guy type of scenario. It's more about how do we collectively as a species find, uh, find a way to uh, improve on what we're doing uh, and at the same time, do so to uh, improve the lives of those around us. Yeah, and one of the one of the fascinating things that, as I reflected on what your company in particular does, is you can actually make a big impact on the environmental impact of extracting and exploring natural gas and and oil by by re, by improving the processes, by making sure there's no waste there, by making sure you track things that could be potentially hazardous. Um, and it's a very complicated industry. I mean, I won't claim that I understand how complicated, but I reflect on the fact that I've probably never driven past an oil derrick in my life, but somebody looking at an oil derrick might think that there's only one company involved, but there's, there's, there's myriad companies involved, even on one job site. How is that work organized? Well, you know, um, so first off, let me take a step back and say, uh, not to be too analogous here, but I think that one of the lessons I learned uh, early on in, in life uh, for me was that sometimes, you know, there's that, that, that iceberg kind of uh, idea, right? Where you yeah. see the tip of the iceberg and, and there's so much more underneath. And uh, I found uh, during the, 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 the automobile crisis, uh, you know, now, what, a decade ago, um, you know, that, that time it looked like, hey, GM for General Motors, for instance, might go out of business. So what? It's capitalism. We're just going to have someone else going to step in to fill the gap. Uh, but what people don't realize is that, you know, the GM was responsible for hundreds of thousands of jobs indirectly. It wasn't just the people going into work eight to five at the plants uh, or in the offices. It's all the part makers. It's all the service providers. Uh, you know, it's all the, even when you think of IT, data sciences, uh, you know, all of these aspects go into making that vehicle, making it safe, making it cost effective, making it, you know, sexy to drive, right? Uh, and so I, I think that to answer your question, uh, there is a lot of complexity here. Uh, and really what happens is there are so many different players, it becomes very difficult to orchestrate this effectively. And what we've found is that uh, there, are, there are many cases with customers we've worked with where before we, before we came in, um, they just didn't have the visibility. It's just that simple. Uh, so a lot of them use paper-based systems. Uh, those, that paper has data transposed incorrectly, it gets lost, you know, Bob spills his coffee on it, you know, whatever. Um, these things happen. And, um, you know, individual cases can be reconciled, but when you start to scale up as an organization, get into, into larger fleets of dozens or hundreds or thousands, that problem becomes multi-million dollar uh, 
a multi-million dollar problem for any given company uh, annually. And, uh, and it, can, it can lead to some pretty serious consequences with regulations. You know, so Payload has actually developed out a, uh, an extension to one of our products. So we have, uh, as you probably know, we have the e-ticketing platform, which, uh, which is largely focused around logistics and field ticketing. We also have the regulatory product uh, called e-manifest. And recently we've extended that to add what we call the TDG paperless uh, product. Um, and that product actually uh, largely addresses some of the complexity that, that you've mentioned. It, it is a product that enables Transport Canada to be aware of and in the loop on uh, what, what's being transported and where. Uh, it gives uh, the opportunity for first responders to have access to that information. It gives uh, the companies uh, on the trucking side and on the, you know, um, on the producer side uh, to have more clarity on what is going where and who is uh, uh, transporting it. And of course, uh, the, the driver themselves, uh, we're working with Transport Canada to, uh, to actually ensure some of these uh, trucking companies have the certification to show uh, show proof of uh, transportation or TDG forms, for instance, uh, in a paperless manner. So there's no need to carry the paper and whatnot. So uh, it is a complex space. There are a lot of moving parts, but know that there's a lot of good people in, in good Albertans uh, behind very innovative solutions today that are helping make it a much simpler one. So th this is interesting to me because uh, as a computer I'm in the computer field as well, and I've been involved in some efforts to replace paper with a system. And it often comes with a whole lot of benefits, not the least of which is, as you point out, it, you, you sometimes only have to enter information once, and then it gets that same information can be reused on multiple tickets. It can maybe pick up your GPS. It can pick up the timestamp. There's all kinds of things to make it more consistent and more accurate. You can even flow it from point to point for invoicing and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I can see a lot of advantages to that. Now, one thing I got to tell you, as an Ontarian, you use TDG like everybody knows what it's meaning. What does TG, TDG stand for? Oh, sorry. Uh, so transport of dangerous goods. So okay. uh, th these are the forms that you use to identify, you know, those payloads and, and have, uh, you know, have a record, right? And so uh, TDG is, yeah, transport of dangerous goods. And... So when I, when I Googled that, I got, I got to, I think it was a, a Canada, a, a federal government document is talking about, because I put in TGG oil and gas, and they were talking about, uh, I think they call it wastewater or the water from the well. Is that one of, is that, is that one of, or is that the primary uh, material or are there other materials that could be brought to and from the well, site? Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot, I mean, uh, you know, TDG, you know, waste oil, hydraulic oil, diesel oil, you know, crude, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, really what, what we're talking about are, are materials, uh, liquids that, that, uh, basically have some kind of risk to the individual or the environment. Right. And so, uh, um, that is, is regulated, uh, and when these drivers are, transporting this, this uh, material, they are uh, required to, uh, to be able to uh, provide uh, some details on that if they're stopped. And, uh, and so that, that's the purpose of TDG. Uh, our TDG mobile app and our TDG paperless product is, uh, is to really help automate and link that up. But more importantly too is 
you know, it, it's, it amazes me in this day and age, 2021, um, that, you know, we still use paper for a lot of these functions. And uh, in fairness to using paper-based systems, there, there is a certain, um, you know, feeling of control people have in those environments because, you know, hey, I'm filling out a form and if I just don't agree with the format, maybe I scratch that out and fill something else in. If I need to make an annotation, I just write it down, right? So, so there are, um, there, there is that feeling of control, but the difficulty with it is that, um, you know, it, that you have to transpose that data. You, you don't have a real-time view of what's going on. <clears throat> things do get lost, things do change. And, uh, and all of this information uh, is so much more easily tracked in, in a much more automated way. Uh, the drivers that, that we've spoken to and we speak to a lot, uh, they really tell us that, look, what, what you can do to add value to my day is not make my day more complex, not add more paperwork, not yeah. add yet another bloody app that I have to work and learn and, 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 and figure out. And, and so the reality is there's a balance here. Um, and, and yes, we do have a new app. And yes, uh, that is something that, that someone will use. But our goal at, at Payload has always been to create uh, something that is as intuitive as possible that enables uh, the user to effectively not have to use an instruction manual. They should just be able to pick it up, uh, start it and do what they've got to do and get out. And it should stay out of their, out of their way, make their life easier. And, and that's what we've really achieved with this because, uh, you know, having these documents and, and having to file them out and, and deal with them uh, is a real pain uh, on the road. And uh, now uh, in the future, I see a future where your Transport Canada uh, representative can uh, effectively pull up the information for themselves and get those details. And we, we will probably get to a point, Tim, in the very near future where you can start to link uh, and geofence and track these types of items so that you don't even have to worry about it. You just, you know, it's, it's done at the site, you pick it up. Uh, when you go to the site to drop it off, everybody can see where it is, everybody knows. If there's an incident, boom, people can be there and they know exactly what equipment they need and what protocols need to be taken to, to uh, you know, uh, mitigate the situation, right? So, Well, and that is the beauty because um, you can go from, you know, this constant uh, uh, sort of monitoring of people's activities, you know, one boss for another boss for another boss, making sure you're, you're going where you need to go and, there's no mistakes happening in terms of transportation that you're taking the right route. You're not taking too long to get there, but this can, the, the geofencing you're talking about is, is terrific, right? Because then everybody involved knows, okay, these are the standards I need to follow. This is where I need to go. It makes things so much easier and, and much less hassle. Yeah. And you know, uh, so on the payload side, uh, you know, we have, uh, we're actually working on, we'll, we'll have a release uh, in the coming month. Uh, to extend our product with uh, some enhanced geofencing capabilities. And um, one of the things that's interesting uh, working in this field, in, in this industry, is that there is a very deep culture of knowledge uh, when it comes to things like safety and transportation and logistics 
and, and the process of, of doing business. And there's so much complexity and so much cost and, and so much risk involved. Um, and so you really have to be careful about how you address uh, these pieces, how, how you um, help a company. And um, that's something a lesson payloads learned, which is, you know, our motto is really to be that platform, that enabler, not to be the dictator, right? So, you know, we do have competitors in the space and, uh, and I, I love them because they're a great counterpoint for us to show why we have such value because, you know, they will often come in and say, here's this great turnkey solution, hand us over the keys and the control and all you have to do is pay a fee and you're good to go. And what we find is that it, it fails miserably. Uh, many, you know, if there's probably the best um, way we get uh, businesses references from previous uh, customers of, of, of our competitors. And, and that, that uh, the reason I use that, you know, I, I kind of lead in with that is because that's also true with some of the new technology we're applying to is, you know, I believe very strongly in taking an incremental approach. We want to be a disruptor, but we don't want to be a disruptor in, in a negative sense. We don't want to cause uh, error, risk, um, and, and additional work and cost. We want to improve all of those things. We want to make it so there's less risk, less cost, right? And more awareness. And we want to really, my goal personally is I, I would love to help everyone uh, have a job that has more meaning and more value to them. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I roll out of bed and I'm, I'm excited to get to work. I feel like everybody should, should have that opportunity. Um, and so uh, a lot of what we do enables companies to find better ways to utilize their, their people instead of having them uh, transposing the same data over and over again between three yeah. different systems, right? So. so so there's some there's some beautiful threads in there I'd, I'd like to, to pull on. Um, one is it occurred to me because I, I did as I was Googling around trying to understand what your company does, see that there were some companies in very similar, if not adjacent spaces, right? And so I, I was wondering what, because one of the great things about paper, no matter all its disadvantages, it's completely interoperable, right? I can hire 17 vendors. And if we're all in paper, we get along. But yeah. if I'm, if I'm a, a con, I don't know how it's organized, but let's say I'm a contractor and I have a whole bunch of subcontractors. It would be great if we were all in the same system, but if we aren't, then how do we navigate that? And so there's two questions there. One is how do customers navigate that? And second does that imply an end game where you need to consolidate the services that are, that are helping companies organize their work tickets and their logistics? Oh, I know it's a, that's a great question. Uh, so let me back a bit and, uh, and, and kind of add some flavor to your earlier statement, which is the, uh, the idea that paper, you know, is, is ubiquitous and paper is something that, that's really interoperable. So um, you're not wrong in saying that. But, <laughs> but the forms but, are not. But, but, but I will say that while the, paper, while the medium is cer certainly interoperable, the structure of the data and the format can, can very much differ from company to company. And, and uh, to such an extent, we've seen forms uh, that, that, that address the same, the same subject matter uh, which have five fields and the next person has 50, you know, that's, that's, uh, being a bit dramatic no, Good so point. on those exact numbers, but, but it is to an order of ag uh, magnitude often, uh, that there can be that level of complexity. Um, so one of the things, uh, and just so you know, 
Um, I actually happen to sit um, as a chair of the business uh, messages work group in the Pydex uh, group, and that's the uh, Petroleum Interdata Exchange. Um, and, uh, and our job there is to help standardize uh, data sharing for the oil and gas industry. Um, and so uh, one of the difficulties is that it's hard enough to get people to agree on a singular structure on paper. It's even harder to get them to agree uh, to a standard um, and, and all the complexity that's entailed there. So once you start utilizing those standards, because they do have a ton of value, uh, once you start utilizing them, uh, you want to do so in a digital way uh, because that can often minimize a lot of the complexity and bring it about down to a digestible level again. So that's that's another theme in what you were saying earlier. The implication was, um, and I, I guess this is why the standards are so important and why the work of something like Pydex would be so important. Is it, in my imagining, is it, is it sort of akin to setting a schema in XML where is it almost like a programming language where you're trying to set up uh, how you would describe different data elements so that you can, you can use, um, you can use a payload system, but we can also use a different system as well. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, a couple things there, uh, you know, with XML is pretty nineties, uh, you know, you and I both lived through those years, I'm sure, Tim. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I would say that uh, two pieces on that. And in the Pydex context, um, yes, uh, there are literally XML schemas and JSON schemas to help uh, define and shape what that data is uh, so that two companies, two systems can integrate reliably uh, and, and do so in a way that, that they get the, not just the, expected data structure, but also the intent or the meaning of, of that data. You know, uh, for instance, precision uh, is, is always going to be something that two companies may disagree on. Is it three decimal places or two? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, from, a, from a payload perspective, uh, we, uh, we offer uh, a couple really great solutions to that. And one of them is by not actually forcing a standard at all. Um, and that is, uh, so we have what we call the data sharing service. And uh, so our customers uh, that sign on the e-ticket platform, they also get uh, access to, uh, or they can get access to the data share. And the data share is basically, uh, we use Snowflake in the background. It's a cloud data warehouse. And what we can do is we define a data model and what we call the business uh, view layer. And that allows companies to do all sorts of analytics and reporting it also lets them ingest their data directly into their own data warehouses or their own data lakes. Uh, so that's kind of our solution to it is by taking a step back and saying, you know, as a customer, if you want us to structure it to a given format like Pydex, uh, we can do that, but we're not gonna force you to do that. We're gonna, again, payload enables the customer. We provide the tools, the access points, uh, we make it as simple as a database connection to in real time access that cloud data warehouse, but, uh, but it's up to you what level you want to take that to. And uh, we're just here to support. So uh, good point about XML. I am a little out of touch when it comes to programming. Um, uh, so I'm gonna ask you a question. You probably cringe every time you sit next to somebody on a plane. Because I'm going to ask the question they always ask, and that is, well, what role does blockchain 
play in this? Do you see it? Do you see a future? Because there's so much about what you're describing, which is creating certainty and an indelible record for, for authorities, for people who are on either side of the table when it comes to money and work. Um, boy, uh, I, you know, I hate to come across as an iconoclast here, but, uh, uh, from my perspective, um, you know, there are times when we find good ideas and technologies and processes, and we find them in a way that we're looking for a problem to solve. <laughs> uh, and not to say that blockchain does not have value. I'm not, I'm not going to pan it here. Um, I, I, I do believe that uh, blockchain has some very serious ramifications. And I think that over time, whether it's blockchain or the next incarnation, there will be a, a, you know, a, a you know, global system of record, which is independent uh, and, and difficult or impossible to, um, to inject, uh, maliciously inject uh, code or changes into. Uh, I think that the idea of blockchain, it, frankly, it isn't new that, that that models existed for a very long time. Maybe not blockchain as we see it today, but very similar mechanisms yeah. uh, for dealing with uh, data privacy and ensuring uh, change management. Um, I think that blockchain is probably a bit ahead of uh, where the rest of the industry is today. Uh, a lot of companies we're seeing, I, I think it's the statistic I saw most recently was something around 78% of the uh, companies out there are still on pen and paper. <laughs> so imagine for a moment, you know, you're the CEO or CTO or, or, or whichever of, of a large producer and you're asked to go from a pen and paper system directly to a blockchain system. Right. Um, is it the right solution? Well, I'm not sure it is. Honestly, it depends on your use case. It depends on what you're looking for. And if what you're looking to do is to have a system that works well with your processes and allows you to incrementally digitize your systems and, and move over, then I would submit that that might be a step too far right out the gate. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if you're in a space where blockchain is really making a lot more traction. You know, I think FinTech would probably be a space that would be uh, particularly amenable to it. Or you're in a space where, you know, that there is a lot of penetration on the mark on, on the blockchain side, then maybe that is a, 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 an area you want to look at. But the challenge, Tim, is, is not even so much blockchain as a technology. The real challenge is uh, and let me put my my systems architect hat on, or, or enterprise architect, if you follow Togaf. Uh, you know the 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 re, the difficult thing here is not so much in that the technology isn't appealing; it's in how do you leverage the existing investments and assets you have as a company to integrate and play well with that. Right. And that 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 software ecosystem that most customers have when you're talking about you know, SAP, uh, and you're talking about all the different accounting systems. Uh, well, you know, if you don't use SAP for that as well, uh, and, and, you know, Dynamics, AX, and all these different systems that you're going to be using, if they don't have ready-made integrations, then you're going to be building them. And even if they do, you're going to be hiring a lot of consultants and creating a lot of projects 
to make all of this work to suit the technology. And I think philosophically that that's uh, a, back, a bit backwards. I think that the technology should be uh, solving the business problem, right? Yep. So well, um, well said. So that's my answer to you. Yeah. No. Well said. Let me let me explore that a little further, not to belabor it, but I, I think that um, part of some of the justification for blockchain is when is you want to arrange a trustless uh, circumstance, right? You want to be able to not have to have faith in anyone except the system, mm-hmm. but we're dealing with an industry where people have trusted each other enough to use paper for a long time. Yeah. So maybe it's a bridge too far. Like you want to kind of work your way toward uh, something like that. Well, yeah. And you know, maybe the question too is like, do you really want to work your way towards that? Is it really necessary? Is it, you know, what, you know, what, what people need to really understand is, uh, and I fought with this as a, as a software developer for much of my life. Um, you know, in programming, uh, you know, we, we, we uh, used to, and we said this, by the way, before the book, I'm just going to put that out there, but programming is always shades of gray. Okay. And, uh, uh, and, and the reality is that uh, in programming, what I mean to say is that there's very rarely a right or a wrong solution. There are just different solutions that work better in different scenarios. And that's just the way it is. Uh, I think there's a common, uh, you know, a common joke that was applied to engineers before programmers, but you know, the question is like, what's the best answer? And the response is it depends. Right. And, and that's, uh, that's very, very true with a lot of what we're doing in business because a lot of what we're doing in business is now permeated by technology and software. So, um, do you want to reach that point? Do you want to reach a point where you don't have to care and and you can just throw it out there and and trust? Well, um, maybe you don't, you know, maybe you have a closed model. Maybe you have a preferred vendor list Um, and maybe the ecosystem you play in, you have solutions that dovetail into your own software ecosystem, into your own existing software investments uh, very well. Um, so, you know, maybe you want the capability to go and uh, uh, change the record for whatever reason, right? Um, you know, that there are, there are a lot of considerations and I think it really depends. Um, and that's not to say that the, the vision uh, is, not, uh, is not a viable one or not a valuable one. Uh, it's just to say that I, I think it depends on the context. Uh, context is everything. Um, and just because we can do it with a technology does not mean it's adding the most value to a customer's day. Well said. So at the risk of throwing in another buzzword, um, I am, I am curious because, uh, as you point out, technology is invading just about every sphere of life. And, and I'm, I'm pretty certain there has to be some attention being given to automation and robotics at the well site which plays into internet of things. So that in turn plays into the idea that a lot of the information that you're, you're, you're capturing at the, at the site doesn't have to even be input once it could be drawn directly from the machinery involved. Do you see that kind of thing going on? To, uh, to various levels. Yes. Uh, So from, from payloads perspective, uh, we started from a place where right now the, uh, the driver, and the head office, they effectively utilize our web app and our mobile app directly, and they 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 input that data as needed. 
Um, that's the simplest, sometimes the simplest uh, path to a solution is the best. And, and again, it goes with our philosophy of allowing people to incrementally adapt to the technology. But some of the things that we've started to look at, we've spoken with companies like Titan Logics as an example, uh, who does IoT type devices. Uh, we've spoken to uh, companies who work with uh, you know, uh, the scales and, 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 uh, and the drop-off points and whatnot. And uh, there are options and solutions. It just comes down to integrations, right? So um, the challenge is there are a bevy of different products out there that, that address this problem space. Uh, there is no industry solution in general. It's much like the Wild West right now, which is just fine. It just comes down to, as a customer, you know, uh, from a payload perspective, uh, can we do it? Of course we can do it. It comes down to what systems are you using and how would you like to integrate with it, right? Um, and again, I think that there are organizations like, you know, the aforementioned Pydex and, and, uh, and others that um, will help us address these. But uh, again, um, one of the things that we need to be cognizant of in, in my perspective is a very consumer uh, centric one, which is um, if as a customer, you don't want to go through the additional complexity of, uh, of, of using standards and, and trying to over standardize things. You want to keep things very agile and you want to have your operations as simple and as streamlined as possible uh, from that perspective. Uh, I'm not going to force you to do that. Um, we do have a robust API. Uh, in, in fact, it's funny, I just had um, my, uh, my product manager update our documentation. I think, you know, it's, uh, it's over a hundred pages. Uh, so it's uh, some real light reading, right? Um, <laughs> so we have very robust, uh, uh, you know, API on the e-ticket and EMFS side for integration. Um, and really it just comes down to working with the customer and understanding what devices they're using and how they want to integrate. But, but to the, the, the short answer to your question is, uh, yes. Um, I don't think there's a standard turnkey solution there. Um, and uh, the ones that purport to be uh, require a lot more than just uh, the key. It's like you have to buy the whole car to, right. to make the, the, the turnkey solution. And that's often far more expensive and less desirable than utilizing what these companies are familiar with and what they need to just incrementally uh, get to that next level and, and realize those uh, optimizations. So... <clears throat> Uh, in the interest of doing the trifecta of buzzwords, let me get to the let me get to the third one, and that is with you collecting all this data at all the different sites. There's a temptation to say, okay, well, let's point machine learning at that and see what we can discover, or even like point data analysts at it. Really, mm -hmm. there's an opportunity to really sort of see where the efficiencies and inefficiencies lie. Um, how do you see a lot of scope for that? Is that something you're inviting people to do with the data you have? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, again, like this is one of those areas where you get you get customers on one end that look at it from the perspective of give me the data and leave me alone. I have my own BI team. I have my own experts. Uh, all I need is is a conduit, right? I just need the data. Um, so we we have a couple of our customers. Uh, that's the exact uh, service we provide through that uh, cloud data warehouse. We have other customers who come back to us and say, I don't have anyone. 
I don't even know what a BI person is. And it sounds like, you know, they just, you know, forgot to buy some deodorant or something. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and in that case, uh, we're talking uh, BI, uh, AIML, all, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, you know, they're looking to us for solutions. And, and, uh, and so we, we've, we've tackled this problem on both levels. Uh, customers uh, work with us uh, left, right, everywhere in between. Um, and, uh, and, and the solution really is that, yeah, we provide that cloud data warehouse that integration point programmatically as well as data level integrations, which makes it super easy for uh, a company that's using our Power BI or something to ingest, uh, all the way to using our, our other partners, Sigma, um, for doing a really cool dashboard visualizations, which we're continually building those out and, and, uh, and delivering those out into market. We have, uh, I think we've been re releasing one every couple of weeks uh, over the last couple of months. So, uh, so you know, that, that's always happening. Um, and I would say that, uh, again, it's something where we can do the work on the payload side to uh, guess what the customers want or to get that feedback and try to consolidate uh, what the market's looking for. And we do do that. But where we find the most value is uh, is providing that data connection and working with our uh, customers as partners to help them uh, visualize and do some of the crazy cool stuff that they're doing with that data. Uh, and it is pretty wild. So I've I've um, seen you use the analogy of a black or or compare the idea of a black box and a white box. Yes. And we're all familiar with the idea of a black box, which is all the inputs go in and then we get the input out and we're like, we have to be satisfied with that. We don't know what's going on inside. A Correct. white box is the, the opposite. So how does payload uh, sort of bill itself as a white box? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think you described it very well. Um, you know, a lot of in our field, in our industry right now, uh, there's a lot of companies out there trying to find solutions to automate, to, to reduce costs and to drive efficiencies. Um, and a lot of the solutions, as you said, uh, look like a black box. Um, in fact, they purport to be one where basically give, hand us over the keys and we'll take care of everything, you know? Um, and, um, and, and that, that really often means that, the integrations they have and, and the interoperability comes down to two very you know, distinct endpoints. And there's very little flexibility in between. Where payload differs is that uh, our API um, has the ability to allow customers to integrate at a much deeper level um, and at different various points in our workflows. So as an example, we do have uh, a customer, for instance, um, Payload really starts at the logistics side and so we start at the orders and the field ticket side when it comes to our e-ticketing product. Um, we have customers who are using other systems, uh, you know, Stratix or, or uh, Peloton, you know, those land view, well view type apps and, and asset management and stuff uh, further upstream. Um, and uh, so what they've done is they've used things like Process Maker and these other uh, workflow type tools um, and they've integrated directly to us to do things like, you know, they have an AFE that gets created in the project management software uh, and they generate orders through their custom software uh, that they've built 10 years ago, right? In COBOL or, or Java or whatever, right? Um, and, and those uh, 
you know, those orders need to be uh, linked up with us. So they use our API and they inject and auto create those orders. And we handle all the drive, you know, we'll work with uh, within our system. They can handle all the dispatching and assignment and, and, and delivery and whatnot. And then when it comes back uh, and we get the, the data after the deliveries, uh, we can then, uh, they integrate with us to ingest that data and then follow it all the way up to their, their accounts receivable or their, you know, AFE reconciliation and whatnot. And, uh, and it forms a, a complete loop. So, um, can you do that with other systems? Sure. I mean, there's, it's not to say we have a monopoly on being able to integrate. That would be silly. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. What I am saying is that our approach to integration is built in such a way that we're meant to be a platform upon which you can build, right? right. Whereas the black, that, that to me is the very definition and the goal of a white box solution is to expose the capabilities so you can build upon it. Whereas a black box is really intended to displace and uh, link in at the two end endpoints. And so in this case, the way they would manage this, um, depending on the products, and, and we had this discussion with them because they, they did remove a previous product where they were unable to link in at that level, right? Um, yeah. so, so that's one of the key differentiators for us. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think as, as far as a business strategy goes, I understand the temptation to lock people in but the fact that you're not locking people in is going to entice people to come on board. And, and, and even the fact that you have this, this uh, openness to the idea of connecting into other systems means you can be a, a, a focal point. You can be a hub. Yeah. And, you know, um, back to your white box uh, kind of a, uh, analogy there. Um, one of the interesting dynamics is, as I said earlier, and one would be right in challenging me on my answer previously, which is you, you already said that it always depends. There's always, you know, uh, so how can you say that a white box is always the right solution, right? And that would be an excellent uh, question and a good challenge. And my answer to that is this, um, the beauty of the approach with payload is that it's not just the idea of being a white box to us. It's the idea of being a platform and a connected platform. And because we are combining the white box approach with the platform dynamic, what that gives us is a system where if a customer uh, chooses, you know, we have partners, uh, we have uh, friends of payload, if you will, that have these other solutions. Um, we can integrate those pieces and collectively supply a black box so we're capable of both and and that is the power of being a white box based platform if you will for lack of better terms here but what what i call an open platform right right um that's the advantage and the power of it uh and from a business perspective um it's not as sexy for investors because you know the black box pitch is we're going to replace everybody and all the money is going to come to us right but um, I think that that's too constraining and restrictive to customers because you're forcing them to displace a ton of process, people, um, a lot of knowledge they have. Uh, you're, you're, the, the, the technology is, is that you're dropping in. Uh, they, one of the realities of software today is that it's all based on integrations, mm-hmm. right? There is, there is no silver bullet. People... We realized that many years ago, you know, SAPs and, and the JD Edwards of the day had had their chance. Uh, most companies now have figured out that 
yes, there is value in these platforms, 100%, but they don't solve everything. Yeah. And, and so the old approach was, let's just buy one thing, it solves everything and we're done. Well, we know that there's no silver bullet. So get over it. You're going to deal with integrations. It's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, but the way in which we handle those integrations, the way in which we design our solutions can make those integrations very synergistic and, and trouble-free, right? And that's, that's the goal of payload is to embrace that and say that, uh, look, we're not here to try to uh, be greedy about capturing the whole pie per se. We're going to execute on what we do and we're going to be the best at what we do. And that's what we, that is uh, how we, how we uh, have progressed. And we're going to recognize the fact that we need to play nice, not just with competitors and partners out there and third parties, but also with the fact that many customers have overlap in their own internal systems. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'd like to explore a little bit sort of the, the mechanics of how payload goes about creating its, its products. And, and you mentioned earlier, I think you used the word incremental, which is my um, go-to approach as well, partly informed by design thinking. It's this idea that you don't know everything and you never will. So you got to try something and see what you learn. And then you have a new Vista from which to try new things. Mm -hmm. um, how do you know? So first of all, because you do that, how do you know when to pivot? So to sort of give up on an idea and when do you double down on an idea? Because sometimes you can give up on things too soon, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really good point. So our process internally, and, and I, I, I hesitate because I don't want to get too technical, um, but uh, long story short, we use an agile process in, in how we develop, but we also use an agile process in how we design and how we, uh, how we theory craft our products. Uh, and, and a lot of that includes feedback from customers. Um, so the way we shape our, our products is we first find where the pain points are. We understand where is the greatest value to our customer next, right? Once we've established that new beachhead, then we put uh, all our minds in a room and we say, okay, let's start to really theorycraft this and figure out what are some ways in which not just we can solve the problem as it is, but how can we disrupt? How can we find a better way? Uh, as we do that, we then communicate back out to not just our customers, but to industry and to partners and say, uh, help us understand how this problem uh, how the solution is good or bad, right? Where it's weak, where it's strong. Um, and then we, we, we follow an approach, uh, again, we're an agile shop, we follow the MVP approach. So the minimum viable product. So once we've established uh, the, the, the wish list, the universe of all features that we'd want, we go through and we basically uh, find what is the nut of this? What is the first piece that adds value? Yeah. And then to dovetail this back to your original question, Tim, uh, once we have that MVP, we get that out there as fast as, as possible. I have what I call a, a fail fast approach, right? Yeah. And it means, uh, you know, my, my motto is fail fast, fail often, win, <laughs> right? And that's, that's how it works, right? Because you, you, you get out there, you do little incremental uh, misses and you, you learn and you, you, you take that MVP You've, you've addressed the core problem. 99% of that's not going to change. 
Sure. Uh, but the stuff that you learn to, to change it going forward will. And so um, by doing it incrementally in that way, uh, we do very rapid release cycles every couple of weeks. Uh, we have our sprint reviews. We communicate that with our customers and get feedback all the time. Uh, and it just becomes this continuous cycle uh, of growing and improving. And so um, while we have our fail fast mentality internally, the customer doesn't really feel or see that because right. what they see is a product just slowly progressing in the direction they want or rapidly depending on, on the situation. Right. So, uh, so, so that's kind of our approach. Chris, I love that. And, and you've introduced me to a new term, which is theory crafting, which I can imagine what that is, but is that sort of um, uh, the uh, definition phase of, of de design thinking where you're trying to come up with what the, what the nature of the problem is you're going to solve? Well, um, so full disclosure, uh, I, I, I don't know where the origin of that term comes from. Uh, out in the general uh, nomenclature there, but uh, for me, uh, that's a term that I've used because uh, I've heard things like brainstorming, mind mapping, things like that. Um, I really, I really like the idea of theory crafting because uh, to me, that term describes uh, the beginning of how can we start to imagine a solution. So um, to me, it emphasizes the fact that we're crafting a solution and it's based on our own theories and, and assumptions, right? And so that's something that happens the, day one. Um, you know, there, in the old days, there was this great term that IBM coined, uh, it was called JAD or Joint Application Development. And what it, what it, what it described was the process as a company or service provider of sitting in a room with your customer to have this, this dialogue and figure out what their business requirements were and shape the problem. Yeah. And um, so that's kind of what theory crafting in today's world means to me is a much lighter weight approach to that. That is the step before that, before you talk to the customer, Let's see if we can theory craft and add value to that next conversation by coming up with some progressive ideas and, and helping set the stage. So that's, that to me is the theory crafting. I love it. I'm going to add that to my toolbox for sure. So let me, <laughs> let me see if, if uh, cause I, I, I imagine a worldview where, uh, and it comes from design thinking again, and it's this idea that um, you have desirability, feasibility, and viability. And you and what you just described sort of walked us through that idea. So you discover you discover need, you you have a theory on how to solve it, and you have to come up with a way to address that. But then you also have to find a way to inject that into the into the uh, marketplace, right? To find if there is a market for that, if people will be willing to pay enough for it, so that you can continue doing the other, so that you can continue incrementing on it, mm -hmm. right? Is that a fair way to describe it? Or have I sort of glossed over a phase that you use? Uh, no, I, I think that that's a pretty reasonable way to describe it. And um, yeah, Tim, what I'll say is I, I have uh, several mentors in, in, in my life, uh, people that I would say have had influence and impact on my growth as a, as a, as a leader and businessman. Um, and, you know, currently uh, I'm working with Stefan from the Working Family Office, and he uh, has a very interesting way of, 
of distilling these things down to what are the core, uh, you know, what's the essence of, of the problem we need to solve. And let's understand and quantify that in a way that that means something uh, to everyone. And, uh, you know, so I would say to add to your model, um, having a technical bent most of my career and uh, being very fixated on the technical side of things, uh, over the last decade, I've, I've really transitioned uh, into having a much broader perspective from the business perspective as well. Uh, and I would say that one of the interesting exercises that we do too is we do a bit of a revenue justification, right? And that sounds, uh, it sounds like something that may not benefit the customer, but the amazing thing is that it absolutely benefits uh, our customers. And it does so in surprising ways, but the one way I'll share is that uh, in that, in that you know, you've talked about the three steps and I would argue that there can be more or less depending on the, uh, on the, uh, on the problem space. I think that less is unlikely, but, but certainly there can be more if you wanna break it out more. But regardless of the granularity, uh, one of the things that we do try to do is we try to look at uh, you know, who are our customers, who are our target audience, understanding their needs, and then understanding and justifying the revenue based on that. And what that does is it gives us a realistic view on what's really important to the customer. Because mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. don't do that, then you start to get into this ivory tower kind of uh, thinking where you think of, you know, the build it and they'll come type of Before program. you know it, you've made a blockchain. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, right? Uh, and, 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 and the reality is that, um, you know, if you try to be more pragmatic and, and apply that, that litmus test of the revenue perspective, you're not just finding a way to, to make money per se. And obviously that is a component there. But more importantly, uh, to, to me anyhow, is the notion that you're finding a way to serve the customer in, in a, a truly win-win situation. And, and I'll be honest with you, Tim, I, I never have liked sales. It's, it's, it's been very uncomfortable to me my whole life. Yeah. So um, the best way for me to address that, especially in the role of a CEO, which I am most definitely attached uh, to all facets of the organization now, including sales, yeah. is to have a genuine product where I've done the homework, I understand the problem, and I understand the value we bring. When I have that, I don't have to sell. I can just say, here's what we have to offer. Here's the case. Uh, it's up to you, yeah. right? And the beauty about Payload is, again, going back to our core philosophy of being that open platform is that um, I can do so in a way where I, I also don't need to be pushy. I don't need to tell them, oh, get rid of those pieces. Oh, sorry, you put down 2.3 million uh, per annum for that, that system uh, over there, that ERP system, you, you want to use us, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have to make uh, uncomfortable arguments like that. I can just provide an open solution, say uh, let's, where can we help? And this is the point we can identify and let's just start there. Yeah. Um, and here's the justification for it. So, so that, that's the piece I would add to your, your formula there, your, your mini blockchain, if you will. Yeah, no, that, that, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> Well, that, that's that's beautiful because you've really articulated um, the the lean startup ethos, which is there's yeah. no point developing something extremely convoluted only to find out that even just the first feature of it 
wasn't going to survive in the marketplace. And when I say survive in the marketplace, I think we're, we're, we're coming at the same topic the same way. And that is, if it's not creating value from a, for a customer to the extent that they're willing to pay for it, then you can't afford to keep that product going and make it into a quality, constantly improving product. Yeah. So you got that flywheel effect where you're, you're working with the customer and saying, you know, tell me, tell me what, what your pain point is. We'll see if we can make something to address it. And let's see if you're willing to pay for it. Yeah. And you right? know, um, you're hundred percent right, Tim. And you know, uh, the, the interesting thing for me is, um, you know, on my side, my background, like I said, was very technology focused. And so um, it's funny because I will look at the, the infrastructure costs of, uh, of, of different companies that I've worked at um, and, and uh, you know, what, what was their monthly overhead to maintain their systems. And often it was tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. You know, I can build a, a, a cloud-based uh, infinite scale uh, system that, that, uh, that performance-wise uh, is second to none. Um, and I can do that for hundreds of dollars a month. Mm-hmm. So for, for, for me, the, the cost of, of the infrastructure side itself isn't, isn't the cost. The, the, the biggest cost for us, um, and to your point in terms of what, what is uh, important, um, is, uh, is the fact that we have you know, very highly trained, passionate people here. Um, and when our customers engage with us, we do become partners. And so, um, so for us, the, the cost and, and the revenue question is really predicated not so much around uh, the, the, the technology side. And I can build a very lean, efficient system. Mm. Uh, that's, that's not an issue. It's more um, the, the cost of providing and, and, and uh, enabling the very high level of service. Uh, Interesting. Okay, let me, let me see if I can echo that to make sure I understood it. That often the, the construction of the technological solution is fairly inexpensive, but what's expensive is gearing up your team and also gearing up your customers to use that service. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, um, so, so as an example, like I wouldn't say the construction's necessarily inexpensive because you're hiring uh, very high quality developers and, and folks on that side. What I'm saying is that, you know, when your earlier comment, when we're talking about running a, uh, a software system and the costs of operating it, you know, the day-to-day costs, like maintaining the database, mm. the infrastructure, you know, um, you know, the, the, the continuous integration, continuous deployment environments that we have, the dev environments, the sandboxes, things like that um, are, are, are not central to the to what we provide to the customer in terms of the overall cost right you know um case in point uh with 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 our with our data share uh service you know it's it's like 500 bucks a month to get a full uh you know scale uh a cloud data warehouse uh and access to that and have your own space to play in and, and be able to integrate with us at the data level i mean that's cheap um and uh, and really, what 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 we charge for is more on the you know for us the, the bigger cost and, and the thing that that uh, I have to look at uh, for the uh, health of the company and, and obviously to serve our customers well is the cost of the people that that we employ uh, the service that we deliver um, and and the and the obviously the R and D so right. um, that that's really where the costs are 
Um, and that, that's really why when we do that revenue justification, what we're, what we're really looking at, as you say, is how can we as a company responsibly provide a service to our customers that we can assure will be around for many, many years and not be some kind of, oh, well, which, you know, like Google does this, right? They're a bigger company. They can get away with it, I guess. But, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll try some new uh, social media app or something like that. And, uh, and it will be around for three months. They'll be like, yeah, that wasn't so good. We're just going to ditch it and move on to the next thing, right? Um, you know, that's not the type of company we are. And so, uh, so for us, there's a bit more due diligence up front and there's a stronger commitment to our customers. Uh, and a lot of that's predicated around that R and D and, and, uh, the service engagement side. So. Thanks, Chris. This is fascinating. We're in the home stretch. I promise not to keep you all night, but I do have a couple more questions. Um, you, you talk about, you talked earlier about how you were constantly talking with the truckers and, and, and people who are on the job site to get feedback on your system. Mm-hmm. How do you go about getting feedback from people in general, the, the various touch points of the systems that you provide? Yeah, um, you know, there, there, there's a number of ways. Uh, so first of all, uh, don't worry if they're dissatisfied, you will know and sure. you do not need to go out of your way to provide facilities for that. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, all of our users have had, uh, or, you know, I would say the vast majority of our users anyhow, uh, have had uh, nothing but, you know, exemplary things to say about us. And I would say all of them see value in payload uh, and in what we do. Um, the ways in which they reach us, there, there's a few ways. Uh, we, we have run uh, what we call a user committee. And so we'll get some of our customers and invite kind of an open mic forum uh, to have a discussion. Um, obviously with COVID, that's something we haven't done as much. Not, not to say we can't do it. I mean- we do it like this. Away, right? You know, right. so it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that we can't do it. Um, it's just what we've found is over the last year, uh, companies are really focused in on a few key uh, activities and uh, they seem to be uh, narrowing their focus and really um, that's uh, led us as a company to narrow our focus a bit in, in making sure that we're adding value to what they need today. And uh, so we will we'll continue to, to do those user councils and, uh, and get that feedback. I find um, that the way we get the best response though, is really by, by engaging our customers and helping them with, with, some, with some activities on their side. So we've had a couple customers reach out to us and say, look, we want your help building some reports. We want, we want your help doing some analytics, right? Um, and, and those are areas that, you know, we sit down, we engage the customer and we both learn so much, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's really probably one of the best ways that we've found to, to learn is just to put ourselves in their seat um, and, 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 and really tackle that problem. And what that leads to, um, and, and I, I apologize up front to the developers watching this by bastardizing this term a little bit, but uh, we, we do what we call um, a hackathon. So we have, we have a, a yearly hackathon at Payload that we do internally, and that's just a, a Payload thing. And uh, we've been doing that uh, for you, you know, for the last couple of years of payload and for with much of my team uh, years before that, another company. Um, the, um, the other thing we do are what we call like a mini hackathon or, you know, we'll call them a hackathon from, from the customer's perspective. And, and uh, you know, what that is, is we'll actually invite the customer in. They'll bring some of their people, we'll bring ours 
and we'll just sit around the the the, the table virtual or otherwise mm-hmm. uh, and we will as as we said before theory craft together we'll bring up some of the pain points and then we'll spend uh, some usually that usually it's a two day exercise, yep. but, but it could be one day. It could be a week. It depends on the customer and on, on, on what both sides see as value. And we'll actually work together to find solutions and hack together solutions to those problems and understand them better. And um, what will often come out of that is that those ideas will feed back into our roadmap. And so we will hack together those solutions. We'll come up with those uh, cool ideas um, and, and, uh, and then we'll put that and inject it back into our roadmap. And uh, it's a really cool experience because, uh, you know, our, our, our customers are very loyal. And, and the reason they are is because, you know, we actually care what they sure. think and we prove it because we actually work with them. We op- we lift the hood and we, we, we have them dive in with us and help us uh, build a better product. Right. Yeah. And um, so, that's, so that's... those are some of the ways in which we engage our customers uh, apart from the, you know, emails and, and sure. other uh you know, more mundane uh, uh, ways that, that you'd imagine. So that, that mini, I think you, I think you called it a mini hackathon at the end there where you invite your customers in. Was mm-hmm. that what that was called? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we call it just a hackathon. hackathon. But, uh, I, I mean, it resembles in many ways a design sprint. Have you encountered that term? Yeah. It, it really feels like that. And, and, um, and the advantage is you've boiled it down to a day or two. Yeah, or, or, or using, like I said, uh, older vernacular, and this is dating myself, a JAD session. You right. know, there, there, there are many uh, terms. Um, the, the reason I refer to it as a, as a hackathon in today's context is because we try to remove the formality out of it. So it, we try to just have an open mic, laid back session. Um, and, and often the objectives, depending on the customer, some customers are very strict about here's some of the things we'd like to, to achieve, right? That doesn't have quite the same hackathon feel. Um, and that's okay. I mean, it's, it's fine. Uh, in many ways, it makes it easier, right? Because you have very, uh, you, you've quantified uh, what it means to be successful in, in those, those couple of days, right? Um, but other customers don't know what they want. Um, and and, and, and that, that's probably the most common scenario. And all they know is that some things don't feel the way they want them to feel. And, and they, they, they need that time to dive in and talk to the people in the room on the payload side to say, hey, guys, here's what I'm feeling. You know, I don't know how to articulate this to you. I don't, I don't know what the solution is. All I know is, you know, I need to do X. And, uh, and so that's, that's where the hackathon, um, and that's why I like to refer to a hackathon is to keep that level of informality yeah. because uh, that's where we see a lot of value. You know, we had a customer... Uh, a good example is we, one of our customers, we used to do a uh, CSV export and, uh, and then an SFTP <laughs> integration. Sure. And, and which is, which it, is, this is paper. This is CSV. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, who the heck does file drops anymore? Well, actually most of our, most of the competitors out there do. In fact, a couple of them advertise it on the page, which I find really funny. Um, but, but, but remember, um, Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't as informed as you and I, Tim, when it comes to software development methodologies. To, to the lay person, that may seem like, oh, wow, that's, that's fine. It works. Right? People, I'm here to tell you that is not fine. Uh, but, um, and I'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to discover why uh, <laughs> it's a long sordid tale. But, you know, the, the Coles notes uh, here is that 
it's a very primitive and, and very inflexible way um, to, uh, to, to integrate two systems. Anyways, um, you know, they were doing, uh, we had the CSV and SFP and, and when we put together, when, when I joined Payload, uh, that was one of the first things I had to deal with. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, and, and so I think it took us uh, maybe a few weeks and uh, like, you know, overall within the course of a month, we had deployed out a cloud data warehouse into production and uh, we integrated them there. And all they did was a query and it went directly into their system. And so we got rid of flat files. We got rid of the SFTP server, got rid of all the key management, everything they had to do there. And boom, it just works. And uh, unlike the SFTP, which every so often their server would go down or something would happen and they didn't get the file and you have to, you know, um, uh, it just works. And it just works all the time, every time. And it's super easy. Uh, so, um, so, you know, um, having uh, those hackathons and, and having those discovery sessions and working with your customers to understand their needs sometimes yields greater dividends than just being uh, a salesperson selling a license or a seat to your product. And, uh, and that's, again, part of the payload philosophy, part of that open uh, white box philosophy is we want to uh, let you in and help us build a better product. So this has been fascinating. I promised you we were close to the end and I know we're running out of time, but there's two themes I wanted to bring up before we part ways. So you calibrate how much time you have to talk about them. One is um, how, do you, how do you shape the culture at, uh, at Payload, especially since you say you've been growing so fast? Mm -hmm. And also how do you go about finding the right candidates to fill your positions? What, what, what is sort of the mindset you bring to hiring? Um, well, listen, <clears throat> you know, at the risk of self-aggrandizement here, I, I would say that uh, the latter question is a really simple one for me. Um, I, I have a very strong network and um, I know a lot of folks uh, in Calgary in the area. I've worked here for much of my life uh, and, uh, and I have a reputation of being someone who, who genuinely cares about the people around me and wants to see them succeed. And, and uh, that's paid dividends later on in life because now as a CEO, I don't find myself really requiring a lot of help to recruit people. I, right. it, especially, I mean, that's not entirely true, Tim, in the sense that, um, for, for instance, if I were hiring salespeople or, or marketing, right, um, then, then yes, it's, it's, it's outside of my, the norm of my network, right? I still have contacts there, that's fine. But uh, if you're talking developers or architects or, you know, anything on the technology side, I you know, I, that's not a problem. So that so, gives you a big uh, pool, but how do you, how do you know that what you select will fit and how, what's the shape of what you're trying to create? Yeah. So uh, for us, the key is attitude. The key is uh, the, the individual, right? So what we do is we go through uh, a multi-layered interview process. Uh, it's very rigorous. Uh, we do, you know, the initial phone interviews, then we do the, the, uh, the traditional uh, interview where it'll be myself and my, my principal architect, Alex, uh, will likely interview these candidates and, uh, and we'll, we'll try to find people who have the technical acumen, but also have the passion. Um, and and passion is really key. And you can identify that uh, over the next couple of steps, uh, the last of which culminates in uh, what I call the gauntlet. And so um, whenever we hire someone, uh, we run the gauntlet. And the gauntlet is essentially you get interviewed by every person on the team. 
Um, and, uh, and that's a, a big round table. Um, and, and we do, we'll do the coding exercise usually as a third step in that. But the biggest one is, is, the, is the gauntlet. And in the gauntlet, everyone comes to that session with questions. Uh, and at the end of that uh, exercise, everyone is asked, um, you know, yay or nay, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and my rule is, uh, if there's any more than one nay, then then it's it's a no. Uh, if there's just one, or there's a couple uncertain, then we have a dialogue as a team. And if we do not reach consensus, then we do not hire the candidate. Um, and what that does is it creates an ownership for everyone in the company on hiring that individual. It's not Chris hiring some developer, throwing them on the team, and then they have to deal with it. It's the team deciding that hire. And often I will not have a vote in that. Um, and I don't speak in it. I let everybody else make that determination because if they got to that stage, then I feel that they're right. candidates. So it's up to the team to make the final assessment. To, to, your, to your first question, um, <clears throat> really comes down to culture. Well, listen, um, you know, that, that's something I care deeply about. I've worked uh, in this industry for a long time now, um, you know, what, 22, 24 years of, uh, you know, of, of being intact at least. Uh, you know, if you count pre, you know, co-ops and that, 26 or so, right? Um, <laughs> and I've worked in a lot of scenarios where I was very dissatisfied uh, with the people uh, that the leadership in, in particular, I very rarely had a problem with the, my coworkers. Um, it was always um, this lack of passion and this lack of uh, willingness to learn and support. So um, what that did is that really helped inspire me uh, to become one of the good guys, I like to say, right? One of the leaders that, that puts people first. So I'm an empathy-driven leader. Um, and my approach is servant-based leadership um, and the way in which I build cultures and, and, and the way in which I succeed, uh, you know, as an organization, as a businessman, as an individual, uh, as a team player, um, really comes down to the fact that I've embraced the idea that if I do one thing well as a leader, it should be to uh, clear all the barriers for those around me to enable them to succeed. Um, and it's never failed me. Uh, and I, I feel that uh, servant-based leadership, clearing obstacles and enabling those around you and hiring, you know, back to our other point, uh, really top-notch, passionate folks, um, you just never lose. Uh, and, and that's the way it is. And to this day, um, you know, as a CTO of my former life, um, my teams were always, uh, my, my department was always number one in productivity. And always, and always a, a, a key uh, part or success story of the, of the company we were at. Uh, and that's not a comment on me. It's a comment on the fact that uh, all I really have to do is bring the right people together and, and enable them to succeed. And uh, so that, that's what I do. And um, I try to also just be a good person to genuinely care about people um, and be honest uh, and upfront. And uh, it creates a culture that, that reflects those values. And, um, and that, in my opinion, creates a culture of success. Excellent. On that note, it certainly sounds like uh, 
Payload is a great place to work, but but you've also uh, made it sound like Calgary is a place close to your heart. Uh, yeah. So the final question is, what advice would you have for somebody who is contemplating a move to Calgary? Oh, well, <clears throat> yeah, Calgary is awesome. Um, I, I By the way, I was uh, born in Chatham, Ontario. I went to university in Prince George, uh, BC. Yeah. Um, nothing against either province. Both are wonderful, actually. <laughs> um, but I, I think... Uh, you know, Calgary, and, and I can't speak to the rest of Alberta much, I'll be honest. I've, I've my experience, I grew up in Okotoks and lived in Calgary and now live in Cochrane. So obviously I'm a bit biased as to the regional yeah. <laughs> um, opinion here. But uh, the fact is that I find Calgary, uh, in my experience across Canada, has a uniquely business-centric perspective on the world and is really, um, I think, a progressive uh you know, well, what's the right word here? Like it has the gravity for business and, and innovation. Um, and, and I think that anyone looking to move to Calgary, you know, the key really is to just step up every day, uh, you know, be, be a positive influencer wherever you work, wherever you go. Um, and the rest follows. This is a great community. The people around here are all very supportive. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or, or, or a developer or whatever, none of those things uh, truly matter. What really matters is uh, your willingness to have a positive impact on the people and the business and the community around you. So if you're that type of person, welcome aboard and enjoy the prosperity you will definitely gain. Thank you so much, Chris. This was terrific. Thank you, Tim. It's been an honor. My pleasure. My guest today was Chris Lambert. His LinkedIn address and Payload Technologies website will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 